I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 5. It says, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart. Then each one's praise will come from God. Went to Walmart yesterday afternoon. It's a weekend ritual, isn't it? We make the weekend trip to Walmart. I had to pick up a few things, Lowe's, Walmart, you know the routine. And in the aisle, the beverage aisle, trying to find some seltzer water, not that you need to know the details of my dietary life, but happened to come across a guy who was a manager there. And what struck me is he had like a purpley green hair. And I just thought that was so interesting. For me, you know, tattoos, green hair, these are in my world an invitation for conversation. If you're going to have a tattoo, you're going to welcome yourself to a conversation with me because I'm going to ask you about it. If you didn't want me to ask you about it, then don't put it out there. Hide it. And for me, green, blue hair falls in the same category. So I began to ask him, not in a confrontational way, not in a judgmental way, just in a curious way. Say, hey, you know, not everybody chooses to have green and purple hair. So I just thought, do you have other colors that you do your hair? You know, is this the first thing for you? Is this something you do all the time? And he said, yeah, you know, people tend to follow me. So I want to see how far I can push him. You see why I asked people? That wasn't not the response I was expecting. He said, yeah, people tend to model their lives after me, which was interesting in the first place. (laughs) And I thought it was just an attempt to see how far they will follow me. You know, he's a manager at the store, so evidently people do follow him and see him in a certain way. But that just struck me as odd. And I find that sometimes people... If I see someone else with colored hair, I'll say, so why did you choose to do that? Tell me about it. And one person told me, you know, I just got to be me. This person had pink hair. He said, you know, I just got to be me. And I'm thinking, well, I'm pretty sure you weren't born with pink hair. So I'm pretty sure that pink is not who you are. But okay, we'll go with that. But there is, I think we would recognize, maybe not in everybody, but in many people, it's not so obvious as pink hair or green hair a desire to stand out, a desire to be noticed. For many people, it's Facebook or Instagram. It's how we control and want to control how people think of us, what people see about us. And with that, there's this desire to excel, to be outstanding. That's why maybe why some pursue things so aggressively. I learned something interesting. I hadn't known this, and I'm going to guess that probably nobody in here knows this as well, the word ambition. You've heard the word ambition before. What I didn't know was that the root word for ambition is ambi, A-M-B-I. It means to go around. But the Latin verb ire means to go. So ambition comes from this Latin word, this combination of two words, ambi and to go. And it means to go around. And it came to mean literally someone who goes around in Greek culture soliciting votes soliciting support for government office. And it had a sort of a negative connotation that you were going to bribe people or coerce people 
to get votes. And isn't that sort of what likes are on Facebook? People, as I did some research, and I'm not going to give you the details, but people are obsessed with likes, so much so that if I put a picture on Instagram or on Facebook and it doesn't get enough likes, I take it down. I mean, not I, me, but that's what people are doing. We're obsessed with the likes and liking other people's stuff, and these are sort of people's votes for us. And we can become so easily, and I don't think I'm telling you anything you don't already know, we can become so easily slaves to what people think of us. Is that true or not true? It involves what we do for a living, how kids choose jobs. How many kids have you talked about the job that they're choosing? And again, I'm not saying this is everybody. I'm saying that maybe as a cultural majority, a lot of kids would say their first priority for choosing a job is, well, because I can make good money. Wouldn't it be a pleasure to talk to a teenager that said, I'm choosing this job because I really want to help people. I don't really care how much money I'm going to make. I just really want to help people. I know I'm not going to get much notoriety. I know I'm not going to be on the cover of magazine doing this, but I just want to help people with my life. It's athletic ambition. It's academic ambition. And again, please understand, I'm not saying ambition is wrong. And we might, in the true sense of the word, maybe it is. The Bible talks about selfish ambition. Matter of fact, selfish ambition comes up in Galatians as a work of the flesh. And it's actually translated strife. So if you think about people in a group trying to get votes for themselves, meaning I want you to vote for me instead of that person. I want you to be part of my clique and not that clique. Because that means I'm popular and that means I'm something. Ambition is all about being somebody. Aspiration is about doing something. So when we look at the Bible, we read about selfish ambition over and over again. Philippians chapter 2 says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or literally empty glory. And it's translated oftentimes in the Bible, strife. And that's what happens when we're trying to compete for votes. It causes division. And that's what we've been talking about in the book of 1 Corinthians. Selfish ambition means I've got to pull people away from you to take my side, believe what I think. And when more people believe what I believe, that means I must be better than those other people. And we judge ourselves. We read 1 Corinthians 4. Did you hear how many times the word judge came up in those five verses? Over and over again. So we recognize in our own culture, in our individualistic culture, in our ambitious culture, we have to stop and ask ourselves, what drives us? What's pushing me to dress this way, to spend that kind of money for those kind of things? Teenagers are especially susceptible to such things. We sort of expect that with immaturity. But with maturity, we would expect to be moving beyond some of these things. And unfortunately, we're stuck in a very immature culture. One woman did a TED Talk. Her name is Jen Cohen. She was reflecting on how she was so interested in circus performance. She just became enamored with the circus and spent her whole life trying to improve her skills in circus performance. And this is what she said. She says, once that moment, that moment of self-confidence passed, I realized it was at that moment that I had succeeded. When she finally got the level of competency she had been looking for, I realized that I had succeeded in circus life. And yet, I still felt that I wasn't good enough. I thought, when I'm at the top of my career, I will feel loved. I will be in front of audiences that will fill me. 
I will feel good enough. I can take it in. I can receive. And once I'm successful, I can feel good about myself. And then she says, that didn't happen. I've seen that and heard that sentiment over and over again. One man, a Navy SEAL, quoted, I think it was Ravi Zacharias, and he said, when a man achieves that which he thinks is the ultimate, he finds that it only leaves him empty. The church in Corinth was a three-ring circus, and many of them were vying to be the center of attention. And Paul's going to talk to them about being puffed up one against the other. And this is the culture that has seeped in from Corinth into the church in Corinth. This selfish ambition, this desire to be somebody, this desire to be noticed. And they were pitting people against each other, dividing into cliques, dividing into parties. And it was just causing a real mess in the church. So Paul is kind of unraveling this and he's going to use another illustration here. We talked about how to view teachers, how to view leaders, how to view people in the world. And one way he said, look at Paul, look at Apollos, look at us as gardeners, agriculture. One of us plants, another one waters, but God brings the increase. Or you can look at us as builders. I laid a foundation, Apollos builds on it, but ultimately it's God's temple. And now he's going to introduce another illustration, that of a household and a household manager, and also sort of one of a rower. He says in verse 1, he says, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. So the first thing he's talking to them about is how people should consider him. And this is the Apostle Paul we're talking about. I mean, this is the guy that went to the best rabbinical school. I mean, he studied under Gamaliel. This guy was a dynamite. This is like going to Harvard for a Jew. So he could be puffed up about that. And he was really advancing in Judaism. He got into leadership. He was ambitious. Matter of fact, he uses a word of himself. He was like a pioneer chopping out new territory in Judaism. I mean, he was willing to go where no one else would go and do what no one else would do just to be known and to have that ambition as a Jew. Now he's saved. He's been dropped to his knees by God in the book of Acts. Whole new perspective on himself. If anyone can say, let a man so consider me as someone who's arrived. Let a man so consider me as someone who's successful. How is it that you want people to consider you? Do you think about how people see you and challenge how they see you? I mean, again, we can go to our social media where a lot of this comes out in social media. That's how we want people to consider us. As a great cook, as a beautiful woman, as a handsome man, as a great family. We put our successes on Facebook, but very rarely do we put our failures on there. Because we want to control how people consider us. Character is who you really are. Reputation is what people think you are. Character is the real you. Reputation is the fake you. Who you can make people believe that you are. So I like this because Paul is saying, church, here's how people should look at me as the Apostle Paul. Here's how people should look at church leadership. Now, if Paul's going to say, consider me a servant, we would say in Christian history, Paul's one of the greatest. There's Jesus and there's the 12, and there's Paul, and Peter's in this group, the Apostle Peter. And if Paul says, let a man consider me a servant, then I'm going to tell you what that word means in just a minute. I'm going to go out on a limb, and just to see how challenging this thought is for us. 
What if the Pope was writing this? Let a man consider me, the Pope, just a servant. Ooh, it sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? Because we tend to have this elevated view of certain Christian people and certain Christian leaders. The damage that does is it says within the body, there are these hierarchies. Now there are leaders in the church, but the goal is not to then lord it over the flock. Like, hey, I'm a leader. My job is to then be served by you. Then everybody exists to serve this leader. No, no, no. We exist to serve our Lord. And so that's why Paul can say, let a man so consider to think about us, Paul, Peter, Apollos, Pastor Steve, the Pope, as servants. And that's not the usual word for servant. The usual word for servant might be diacono, it's servant, it's where we get the word deacon, it means a table waiter. But he used a different word, huperites, and it means an under rower. Now, this would take this church instantly to the thought of the Greek or the Roman battleships. Now, they didn't have big turbine engines. They had oarsmen. That's how their battleships operated. They had three tiers. The trireme was the ancient battleship, and it had three rows of oarsmen. If you've seen Ben-Hur, you've seen that picture. There's the top level, the middle level, and the bottom level. You didn't want to be rowing on the bottom level because if the ship started to sink, you were the first one to go under. And you were chained to your seat. And you rode and you never saw daylight. You didn't get up and say, excuse me, I, I need to use the bathroom. Can I just get, no way. We're in the middle of a battle here. You have to go to the bathroom. You do it right there in your seat. It was dirty and messy and smelly. And so Paul says, consider us as under rowers of Christ. I had the chance to row in college. In my college days up in Philadelphia, the Schuylkill River, in Philadelphia, I was on the rowing team. Now, we didn't row in three layers of rowers. We had one boat, eight men, and a coxswain. The person, sometimes a girl, sometimes a guy, it had to be lightweight. That was the key. And that person was the one that was calling the stroke, setting the beat. And all of the rowers, whether you were in the first seat or the last seat, by the way, you sit backwards when you row. You don't even know where you're going. That's that person's job, the person that sits in front. Just like on the trireme in the battleship, there was a person who was beating the drum and calling out cadence. All the rowers, they were just listening to that person who was telling them when to row and keeping them all on beat. So in my college days rowing, I learned that rowing is probably the ultimate in team sports. You may disagree with me, but I believe having played a lot of sports, rowing is the ultimate team sport. You got eight people all pulling in complete unity. Believe me, trouble happens. If you decide you want to row to a different beat, Oh boy, right. Because you're close to each other. If you decide you want to go to a different beat, the guy in front of you slides back because you're sitting on a moving seat. The guy in front of you slides back and he gets an oar right in his back. And then he gets angry and your oar goes into water and the, the boat's moving fast that way. And there's something in rowing called catching a crab. And it doesn't mean like dinner. I'm not picking crabs in Maryland. A crab means that your oar goes in the water so fast when you're out of time with everybody else, your oar goes in the water. The boat is going that way. Your oar gets shoved that way. It picks you up under the chest and throws you out of the boat. That's what happens when you get out of time with the rest of the boat. You get tossed out. What Paul is saying is, number one, we're under rowers of Christ. It's Christ that knows where we're going. It's Christ that calls the cadence. And I am just one of a whole bunch of other people that are rowing this boat together. 
And the important thing about us as rowers is that we do it in unity, in harmony. That's how the boat moves the best. So he says, consider us as under rowers of Christ. There's one more thing I want to point out there. They were very judgmental, the Corinthians were. They were examining these different teachers and deciding which one was better. Oh, Apollos, he's got a much better stage presence. Oh no, Peter, he understands Judaism better. And they would just be like they were in church and they had their little sign. Oh, that's a 10. How was that sermon? Oh, it was a 10, pastor, it was a 10. I know that when you guys go home, I get rated. What'd you think of the sermon today? Or I thought Steve was a little tired today. I couldn't follow him at all. What about you? What'd you think of the sermon? So I understand that. And that was life in Corinth. And the problem was, is they were not giving Paul very high marks. So Paul, this is very personal. They're not giving him very high marks. And so he says, let a man consider us as servants of Christ, not of you, not of the people, not servants of the Corinthians. Now we are to serve the people that we lead, but we are ultimately servants of belonging to who? To Christ. You see, so many pastors become hirelings. You know the word hireling. I've known pastors, some friends of mine, guys in the community, they roll into a church. The church has been around since 1776 or 1780 or whatever. And some of the people, it's their family church. And the pastor, he just rolls in and they're like, look, you're here now, but someday you're going to leave and we're still going to be here. This is our church. And you are going to do what we tell you to do. And the poor pastor becomes just a puppet, always in fear of not doing what the church council tells him to do. He can't preach on this. Well, you can't do that, pastor. That's going to make us mad. And then we're going to fire you. And a pastor that gets stuck in that, oh man, that's a miserable, a miserable place to be. So not only servants are under rowers of Christ, but also stewards of the mysteries of God. So as a servant, one who takes orders from others, he's also a steward. A steward is the chief slave of the house. So in a household, you'd have many slaves and one slave would have a role. He was still under the master, but he was over the rest of the slaves. So that's what Paul says. When it comes to the message, we are this household manager. The steward was the one that when the house owner went on a trip, went away for a while, the steward or the manager would take care of all the affairs. He'd make sure the people got paid for the supplies they were bringing. He'd make sure all the southern slaves were doing their jobs. He had a management role, but he was still under the management of the master. And he says, we're stewards. We have a management job when it comes to the mysteries, the sacred secrets of God, the secrets that are now being revealed. He had a responsibility to the word of God. That's what he's doing. That's what he says. Now, if you're going to be a steward, this is how Paul sees himself, then you have to know what's important about being a manager. Well, verse 2 says it. He says, moreover, it's required in stewards or managing slaves that one be found faithful. Circle that, underline it, highlight it, do whatever you have to do to draw your attention to that word faithful. And let's imagine for a minute you decided to get into business for yourself. You decided you were going to open up a retail store. And you're going to have employees, but then you don't want to be there all the time, do you? I mean, you don't want to have to be there all the time. An owner, manager, that's nice, but boy, that gets old. That gets tiring to be there all the time. So you hire a manager. Are you with me in this? 
Now, when it comes to hiring the manager, what are you going to look for? Well, it'd be nice if they showed up on time. Because if the manager is supposed to open at 6 a.m. or 9 a.m. and they're not there, that's bad for business. Oh, gee whiz, I I stayed up late last night watching YouTube videos and I just overslept. You want someone who's going to be there on time. You want someone who's going to carry out business in the way that you would carry it out if you were there. Are you tracking with me? Because they were judging Apollos, Paul, pastors. How does one look at, how does one decide if the pastor is a good pastor? I remember here talking to a young girl. Oh, we just love our church. I love my church so much. Oh, I love my pastor. And I said, well, I'm curious now. What is it that you love about your pastor? Oh, he's so funny. He's so funny. Like, that's great. But is that what's important about being a pastor? I mean, this is the game we pastors get sucked into. Because the guy down the road is funny. And look, at Calvary Chapel, there's a lot of funny guys that are part of Calvary Chapel. This pressure, like, I got to be funny. We were down at a pastor's conference just recently down in Atlanta, and I had been given the slot of a little 15-minute talk that I was going to do to this group of 400 pastors. And the guy before me, he was funny, and he brought all of these props, and I'm sitting there just going, oh, no, I'm so dead. Because there's this underlying thing, like, I want them to like me. I want everybody here to say, wow, Steve did a great job. And I think I'm not alone in that. And so now there was this pressure. And in Corinth, there was this pressure, you know, Apollos is a great speaker and he had a great approach and a great style. And Peter had his thing. And Paul, he was a little short, had one big eyebrow. He wasn't very good looking. He had bad eyes and he wasn't a great speaker in that way. Is it important that pastors be stylish, entertaining, humorous? The best compliment I've ever been given is when someone said, Pastor Steve, when you teach the Bible, I understand what God is saying. That's it. You can have a high education and speak with lofty words, but if no one gets it, what good is it? And so the best compliment, since funny is not in the runnings here, just understandable. You know, funny is fine. Stylish is fine. All those things are fine. Understandable is good. But what's really important about a manager is to manage something. If you're going to give responsibility to someone for something that you have, You want them to be trustworthy. You want to know that if you give them $100 to hold for you, that they're not going to go out and blow it. Number of times, Jesus tells stories related to servants that are faithful and unfaithful. I'll just give you one, Matthew 25. You're familiar with it, the parable of the talents. He's got these three servants. This master has these three servants. To the one servant, he gives five talents. To the next servant, he gives two talents. These are units of currency, units of responsibility, you could say. A trust. Something I've entrusted. Five, two, and then he gives one talent to the third person. And then he goes away for a while, and they're responsible to do something with what they've been given. Finally, the master comes back, and he says, okay, how's it been going? What have you guys done with what I gave you to use? First guy says, oh, I had five, and now I've got ten. I invested it, and it's double. And then the second guy, I had two, now I've got four. None of them is judged by the amount. Then the third one says, well, you know, I bury it in the ground. I was afraid of you, so I bury it in the ground. I never used it, but here's your one talent back. And the master says in that parable, you wicked and lazy servant. If you really thought I was that bad of a boss, you'd at least put it in the bank where I could have earned interest. But he tells him, you wicked and lazy servant. 
And as he goes down, he says, take that guy's one talent, take it from him and give it to the guy that has 10. And then he gives the principle that I think is important for us to understand. He tells the servants that have done well, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. And then the principle is, for to everyone who has, in the context, has what? Has faithfulness. To everyone who has, more will be given. Mother Teresa said the reward for being faithful in a little bit of work is more work. For to everyone who has, more will be given. But to him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. This is the principle of faithfulness. When it comes to being a steward, what is it that God has given you stewardship over? For an elder in the church, the first place of faithfulness is where? Family. You can't be a church leader if you can't operate and serve in your family. There are small things and small places. Kids, young folks in here, you think school is just a throwaway. Well, I'll just get through so that I can get a real job and make real money and do real things. Look, if you aren't faithful in school, if you aren't faithful with little things that God gives you, then you won't be faithful with other things. That's character, not reputation. This is a humongous principle. Charles Spurgeon, famous preacher, preached to thousands in London every Sunday. And he started his ministry just by passing out tracts and teaching a Sunday school class as a teenager. He was eventually invited to obscure places in the countryside to preach. And after that, became known as one of the greatest preachers in England. And this is what he said. He said, I am perfectly sure that if I had not been willing to preach to those small gatherings of people in obscure country places, I should never have had the privilege of preaching to thousands of men and women in large buildings all over the land. So what Paul is saying to the Corinthians is that my role, his role, my role, being popular, being funny, being dynamic, being witty, all those things are fine. But the ultimate role of anybody who serves the Lord, whatever gift you have, if it's giving, then give with liberality. If it's evangelism, then evangelize. If it's mercy, then be merciful. The question God will ask of you, me, is not were you successful, but were you faithful? Did you labor away in the small things of life? For my glory? Did you esteem the small I'd given you to manage as important and valuable? If you do, God will see to it that you have more. Have you seen that to be true? The employee you want to make manager is the one who is faithful and trustworthy. Now, Paul, he's laid the foundation and you have to know, I have to know priorities come from knowing who you are and knowing what's needed in your life. So now he says, verse three, but with me, It is a very small thing that I should be judged, examined, or scrutinized by you, Corinthians, or by a human court. So now Paul starts to look at the other areas of judgment. He says, when it comes to God, when it comes to the thing that he's given me responsibility for, I am responsible to be trustworthy when it comes to the word of God, not to tone it down, not to water it down, not to withhold some. I know a lot of pastors, listen, I know a lot of pastors that are unfaithful with the word of God. I sit with them at various places and various times and they will say to me, well, I can't preach on that because that will offend people or because that might make people misunderstand or that might be this. We'll just preach on the things that we think people deserve to hear. Look, I can say and I want to say the day that I go to be with the Lord, the day that I see him face to face, I want to be able to say to him, Jesus, I did not shun from giving your people the whole counsel of God's word. 
It's his word. Who am I? I'm just a steward. If he said it, I go, here's what God said. But other people are going to judge, but other people might not like it. That's what Paul says. But other people might not like it. And Paul says, look, for me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you. Isn't that great? Do you see the freedom of the apostle Paul in this passage? Does anybody else love this? I'm like, here's a free guy. Here's a guy who is truly free. He is not bound by what other people think. He says, it's a very small thing. Well, we don't like the Apostle Paul. Who cares? I'm not trying to impress you anyway. We live in an eggshell world now, don't we? Just talking to a young guy, he's in school at Piedmont here in the church. We were chatting about something he had to do in his class and just made me think about, we live in this eggshell world where everything is determined and judged and scrutinized based on how it makes you feel. And therefore, I never know what is right or wrong, what's good or bad in terms of the world, because it's all based on how it offends you. And we're highly offensible. No wonder we're all freaking out. Because we don't know anything anymore. We don't know who we're going to offend and how we're going to offend them. And if we do offend somebody, we get shamed publicly via social media. And we are afraid to say anything to anybody. And certainly if we're in a group and we have a different opinion, we are not going to share that. As a Christian, you are sometimes going to be called to have a different opinion in a group conversation. But you go, I don't want them to think different. I don't want them to think bad of me. Well, who are you living to impress? If you want to please God, you will not please men. But if you want to please men, you will never please God. We live in this fear of shame. So Paul says, look, can you say that? Can you say that? It's a little thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. When the court of humanity convenes and you are on trial, do you care what the court of humanity says on the day of judgment, the day that mankind judges you? See, mankind is not qualified to judge you. Let the court of humanity say what they want. I told you guys, when I became a pastor, the court of those that I knew from my business world all said, you're wasting your life. That was their judgment. Steve, you are guilty of wasting a perfectly good career. And I said, okay, guilty is charged. But you're not the court whose judgment matters. Isn't that great? It's not the court of the Corinthians. It's not the court of humanity. By the way, the court of humanity convenes on Facebook, convenes on Instagram. That's where the court of humanity, we don't like that, we like this. We don't like that, we like that. Forget it. Get off of Facebook. Ditch it. If it's a problem, step out of the court. Paul says, look, in fact, I don't even judge myself. For I know of nothing against myself, yet I'm not justified by this. But he who judges me is who, church? Is the Lord. Look, we're not talking about judging in terms of activity and action sin. Paul is going to bring into judgment their sin, isn't he? He is going to say, hey, you guys are sexually immoral. He's going to talk about behavior. But Paul's not the determiner of sin. He's just sharing what the Lord says. But when it comes to people pleasing and who we like and who we don't like and clicks and all that, Paul says, look, I don't even judge myself. Why? Because I know nothing against myself. Paul's conscience was clear. Yet he says, I'm not even qualified to judge myself. Because if you judge yourself, you are always going to judge yourself higher and others lower. That's the twistedness of the human heart is that really the one person you can't see clearly is you. And you sit in judgment of other people. Well, if I was them, I would do this. And if I was them, I would do that. And there's a whole court judging you right back. 
and you think you got it all together. They thought they had it all together. We're not justified because we say, well, I'm a good person. Who are you to judge if you're a good person? You got to get into the word. and The word says you're a sinner. So we're not justified by the world. We're not justified by our close group of friends. We're not justified even by our own thoughts about ourselves. But he who judges me is the Lord. The one who's examining me is the Lord. Now that might make some people scared. Uh Uh-oh. Therefore, verse 5 says, judge nothing before the time. He's speaking to the Corinthians. Hey, you guys are being too hasty in judging. Judge nothing before the time until the Lord or the master comes. They're like servants all judging one another. They're like oarsmen all rowing to different beats. And Paul says, don't judge too early because when the Lord comes, he will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. And he's specifically addressing this desire for the praise of people and saying, you know, when God comes, he is going to actually reveal motives. What you can't tell about that person is their motive. When Samuel is called by God to go and anoint the next king, remember the people's choice? Who did they select? They selected Saul. Why? He looked the part. He was tall. He was handsome. He was big. This guy looks like a king. And they suffered for that because he was a people pleaser. And then God sends Samuel to the house of Jesse. Jesse had all these sons. He starts marching them through. And oh, certainly that's the one. Samuel says, no, no, no. God says, that's not the one. He's big and he's strong. He looks like the one. No, not the one. Finally, all the brothers go in front of Samuel. And Samuel says, is there anybody else? None of these guys is the one God chooses. And Jesse says, well, we got this little shepherd guy out in the back. You know, he's still out with the sheep. You want to bring him in? He's the one. And God has to teach Samuel the lesson he has to teach me the lesson he has to teach you that man does not see as God sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Reputation is the outward appearance. Character is the heart. A couple years ago, actually, I had a bicycle accident riding my bike around the neighborhoods. I got attacked by a pit bull. Luckily, the pit bull did not attack me, but attacked my bike and tipped me off the bike. I was going fairly fast and I hit the deck and got up and the dog ran away and and my wrist was hurting pretty bad. And so I figured it was just a sprained wrist. We went home and kind of nursed it. About four or five days later, it was still hurting. So I went to urgent care. They did some x-rays. That's just sprained. We don't see anything. For another four or five weeks, it was still in pain. And by five weeks later, I'm thinking, you know, something is not right. So I went to the hand clinic at UVA. I need another opinion on this. So they took x-rays and they said, well, not only is your thumb broken, but you have a torn ligament in your hand. See, when they looked a little deeper and took a little more time and swelling had gone down, the things that were inside became more clear. The motives became more clear. And then the proper diagnosis could be made. You know, we live in a world where people are hurting and we're trying to do our best. I believe we're trying to do our best but we misjudge. We misjudge each other. There's one thing I'm scared of. It's being too judgmental. I've always found in my life, I'd much rather be gracious. Because if it's left to me to judge you, I don't know your motive. I can't tell why you could be doing that because of pain or hurt or some other motive. So for me, it's just, you know, I just want to be gracious because when the day comes 
and the Lord judges and he reveals the hidden counsels of the heart, those hidden things, then everyone's, what does he say? Not condemnation. Everyone's, what does he say? Praise. Everyone's praise will be from God. That's the day I'm looking for. I'm not going to be on the cover of Fluvanna Review. But I know that I know that all that I do may be forgotten in this world. But God will remember. And my praise will be from him on that day. Amen? Amen.